Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, June 22nd, and we're saying no arigato to Domo. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, what did you think of that intro? I, th- I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, asking for that pun, you know? I mean, it's too easy to, <laughs> to pass up. Yeah, I could not I use the, I use the same similar pun in one of my articles. So. <laughs> I leaned, we leaned on your articles for the outline of today's show, and I will say, I, I was like, I saw that, and I was like, I got to in- integrate that somehow into the introduction. I was hoping you'd enjoy it. I hope our listeners do, too. Um, so, we're going to be talking today about an upcoming IPO, uh, and this is Domo. It's a name that folks that follow the private market might be somewhat familiar with. This is a company that ha- has a decent following because it's a unicorn. Uh, it's one of the private companies that has a valuation over a billion dollars. And it seems like they are kind of looking at the IPO market and saying, hey, like there, there have been some pretty good issuances this year. There's a pretty warm welcome to a couple of the issuances this year. That looks good. Also, we're a company that desperately needs money, so, so it's time for us to go raise some. Um, so, so this is going to be, I think, an IPO that has a decent amount of coverage on it. We wanted to talk about it uh, before too many other folks got in on it. Uh, why don't we start out just talking about what the company does and, and kind of their space in software as a service? Sure. So they, they're primarily an enterprise software company and uh, really focusing on data analytics. Uh, so you know they try to gather and monitor data from all across your company and really kind of organize it in a way uh, to you know allow these executives to make you know data driven decisions so they have like mobile phone apps you can you know kind of see what all the, these different data points within your company so it, you know certainly sounds good on paper yeah, and and this is a space that we traditionally really like. You know, I've had Brian Feroldi on in the past, and he is someone that is a big software as a service type investor. He loves these types of businesses. They're generally high margin. You have recurring subscription revenue. There's a lot to like with what this company does in the space that they operate in. Uh, you, you talk about data driven decision making, and there's a lot of buzzwords around this business. It certainly kind of gets people excited. Um, if you want kind of a quick way to understand this, it's basically kind of an operational dash for a business. Um, it gives monitoring, kind of alerts when things seem to be kind of awry. They use some AI and machine learning. Um, Certainly, a business that checks a lot of boxes for emerging tech and, and what people might be interested in. Um, and the founder has a track record of establishing pretty interesting businesses. Uh, he, he, Josh James, sold Omniture to Adobe nearly a decade, nearly a decade ago. And so um, you have a space that's interesting. Uh, a founder with some success in the past, seemingly a uh, a thing that investors might be interested in. And yet, um, I think we are kind of pumping the brakes on this one, Evan. Right. I mean, you have these kind of things that, like you said, they check off these boxes that investors tend to like. But when you actually, you know, go beyond just the surface and start to dig in a little bit, I mean, the, everything about this company is just there's just so many red flags when I'm going through this S1 registration statement and the and the amended one too. But yeah, the the numbers are just terrible. Um, they spend more on sales and marketing than they generate in revenue, which is probably one of the most inefficient marketing spends I've ever seen. Um, like there's just it's just insane. <laughs> yeah, in the uh, most recent fiscal year, uh, they posted revenue of just over 100 million dollars, which was good for 46 percent year-over-year growth. But uh, they posted pretty big losses, and that was because on sales and marketing alone, they spent 130 million dollars, uh, and that's actually the second year in a row that sales and marketing spend has outstripped their revenue spend. So just on that line item, they are going to be losing money. The reality is that. This hemorrhaging of cash has has had a pretty big impact on the business. 
Right. Like the, so they have, you know, about 1600 customers or so that are like the big customers or the, of that there's about 380 ish, uh, big customers that contribute over a billion dollars and re- or not, not contribute. They have over a billion dollars revenue for themselves. So Domo sees them as kind of the big fish that they want to try to sell to these customers. And they rely heavily on that group, uh, which represents nearly half of the top line sales. But yeah, I mean, they burn through so much cash uh, because it's really boils down to execution. I mean, they have negative operating cash flow of almost $150 million last year. And I mean, they're, they're just straight up running out of cash. I mean, they had uh, about $70 million at the end of April. They have maxed out their credit line, so they borrowed $100 million. And, and I mean, this is a company that raised $700 million in venture funding while it was a private company. And, and that's what they have to show for it. I mean, it's just... It's just dismal. Yeah, looking at some of the operational decisions they've made and, and kind of how that's impacted their financials, they point to this number that you see very commonly with subscription businesses called net retention rate. And that is the closest thing that subscription businesses have to a comps number that you'd see with a restaurant. It's basically a look at customers that we had a year ago. Uh, how much money are we getting? How much money are we capturing from them versus what we got a year ago? And they posted growth in the past, but in this most recent fiscal year, the company had a 95% net retention rate, which means that from that cohort of customers, they're actually collecting less money than they were in the year prior. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they had a lot of customers leave that were in the non-enterprise segment, or they they were collecting less money from those smaller players that they were spending a lot of money to try to bring in as customers to begin with. Right. I mean, there's just it's very clearly obvious that they're you know their whole goal is to you know get these customers and start upselling and getting more and more offerings, you know, selling more and more offerings to them. But it's pretty clear that they're just failing to do that. But they're spending a ton of money trying to do that. Um, so, I mean, you also have to wonder, you know, from a product perspective, I mean, neither one of us has really kind of, you know, had a chance to dig into the product, but it just suggests that maybe the product, while it sounds good on paper, isn't actually as good as, you know, they're kind of selling it as, as or as they're hoping it to be. And that's, it's kind of the danger of the land and expand strategy. You know, you hear this a lot with software as a service businesses, right? It's like they get in with the decision maker and they slowly grow their use case within that company. They, you know, add licenses, they get to become a larger and larger port, uh, portion of the company's operations. Uh, to do that, you need customer acquisition and you need for people to not only decide to use the product, but then ultimately decide to add users to kind of build out the functionality and decide to pay more for the plan. Uh, ideally, the company grows and, and kind of sees the use case there. Um, what we're seeing with the net retention rate in particular is that that is not necessarily happening. And so, when you are spending a lot of money to acquire customers, and in their case, I think the payoff period for a lot of the customers that they're acquiring is several years, and then they are not sticking around or they are not, you know, upselling to higher level products. That's going to cause a major cash problem for them, and that's what we're seeing looking at their financials. No, exactly. It's like you, you know, you talk about their break-even period being several years, and they clearly don't even have several years because in the filing, another one of the big red flags that jumped out to everyone was, you know, they, they're very upfront. They're saying hey, if we don't get more money by August, which is you know two months from now, <laughs> they'll have to start immediately start cutting operating expenses, which is going to come, you know, probably going to come from layoffs and like downsizing the business and i mean it's just gonna probably gonna become a downward spiral at that point but and i mean again like they're just at the end of the line i mean they don't have that much cash that effectively the cash they have is all from a credit line like the amount of money they own this credit line is greater than what they have on the balance sheet right now so that's why they're just like 
they're, they need this money. <laughs> and if you're an investor, that's not, you know, uh, obviously we like to be long-term investors and they're, and they're worried about the next two months. Yeah, we often talk about the fact that a company chooses when they decide to IPO. You know, very very often it's you know they're looking for the numbers to look really great and be presentable, so that um, maybe they're going through a a little bit of a pivot and they can at least say, hey, like this is what our user numbers look like, and we're showing really great growth. In this case, they're not really choosing the fact that they're going public. They were probably going to be going public sometime soon, anyways. But they need the money. You know, they've they've exhausted their current credit line uh, pretty much immediately after amending it uh, to be able to get an additional. I think fifty million or so, and they've uh, exhausted that credit facility. So they are looking at this truly as a capital raising event, right? And you know, it's worth noting that these these credit these types of credit lines have a lot of covenants on them that kind of restrict what the company can do. So you know, it's not going to be easy for them to go out and secure. You know, this IPO is probably their best shot at getting some you know a capital infusion, and you know, and I mean, it seems like it's going to go through. But you know, how much they raise and all these other variables. Like, there's not really a lot of options left for them because it's not like they can go out and take more debt on because these covenants aren't going to let them take more debt. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's just a mess. So, because of this desperation uh, and because of the the current state of their financials, um, this is a company that is going to be going public at a lower valuation than their recent funding round as a private business, which you don't really see all that often, Evan, right? I mean, they, they raised money at, what, $2.3 billion, uh, I think, in mid-2017. And I think the IPO valuation suggested is somewhere in like the $500 million range. Right. So, they're, they've lost 75% of value in just over a year. <laughs> which, is, which is something you just don't see all that often. I mean, even the Blue Apron IPO, which decided to revise down you know, what they were going to price their, their shares at, I think that was like a 30% haircut or something like that. You know, This is a 75% haircut um, in about a year and change. And actually, they are seeking a valuation that is less than the venture funding that they've received, right? You said that yeah. they, they raised seven hundred million or something like that over the last couple of years. Uh, this is something you don't see very often in a company going public, right? I mean, it, it all just boils down to financial mismanagement and a little bit of self-dealing, which we'll get into here in a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's really the main reason that we wanted to talk about this business today on the show is we aren't super interested in them as an investment, but I think that this S one. Really highlights the importance of reading prospectuses to begin with, and it gives us the opportunity to talk about the idea of self-dealing, which is something that we really don't discuss all that often. Right, because ideally it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, uh, Domo very, has some very interesting business arrangements, or used to. Um, so the the company has spent a lot of money at other businesses that are associated with CEO and founder Josh James. So he has a separate aircraft leasing company. Uh, Domo was paying his other company called. He's got a bunch of weird names for these like companies. Uh, JJ Spud, uh, and you know they're not in the potato business. They're you know in aircraft leasing. So Domo was paying JJ Spud to to lease an aircraft, and that's you know money going directly into it. You know the founders' pockets, and they spent about 1.8 million dollars over the course of two years. Uh, they also spend about $300 per year on catering services from a local restaurant that is owned and operated by James and his brother, Cubby. They also spent another $200,000 uh, for interior design from the James's other brother, <laughs> um, and then he has a stake in that, too. So, I mean, it's just this all these, like, really entangled business relationships. And, I mean, to be clear, this isn't the kind of money that 
is going to break the company, right? I mean, it's like a few million dollars over the course of several years versus the other stuff we just talked about. So it, it's it's a drop in the bucket. But when you're coming at, at, at you know from this position of like desperation, it just looks terrible when you're doing this. And in the amended filing, they did say that they had you know basically just killed all these business relationships because they were getting a lot of criticism about this. Like it just doesn't look right. Um, so they, you know, they have ended those relationships. Uh, but then what they did after that is they introduced what's called the directed share program where essentially part of a portion of the IPO shares that are being offered get set aside uh, for insiders as well as their friends and family. <laughs> which, which sounds like a deal that you'd be getting at like a department store. It does not sound like something you'd expect with like a share issuance. Right. So, you know, and, and they're setting up about 7.5% of the shares and, you know, friends and family are going to be able to purchase these shares as well as the insiders. Now, if the insiders buy it, they're going to be subject to a lockup restriction because, you know, they have inside information. But if the any of these other people that are associated with these you know, insiders uh, end up participating in this program and buying, they will not be subject to a lockup restriction. So, you know, theoretically, if this IPO goes well, which I mean, doesn't look like it will in terms of what happens after it, it starts trading. You know, if you get in at the offering price and the stock jumps, and you're and you're not subject to a lockup restriction, you can make quite a bit of money. Particularly if you know your family members with you know some executive officers or whatever. Uh, so and so there's just this tremendous potential to like basically trade on inside information if you know you you have access to it. I mean, if you, if, if your family if your brother runs this company, you know, I mean, it, it's just so much potential. And I mean, the SEC used to crack down on this, you know, many years ago. But, you know, I think so companies have been tr- trading cautiously with these types of programs. But there was a Harvard Law study done last year that found that for all U.S. IPOs uh, across all sectors in the U.S. from 2013 to 2016, uh, almost 40 percent of IPOs had some type of directed share programs. So these are actually a little bit more common than you might think. But I think that people, companies have been able to better manage the risks associated with them, which is why you don't have as many like scandals. But not to say that the potential is not still there. Uh, and the, the median percentage of how many shares are being set aside from that study was about 5%. Uh, so this one is about 7.5%. So that's kind of in line with you know what, what you would expect. So not actually that uncommon. But when you put it in the context of all the other stuff that this company is doing, it just looks terrible. Yeah, I, I don't have so much of a problem with it. You know, the the, the idea of uh, getting people that are bought into the business are bought into like the long term vision for the founder. You know, I'm sure that's friends and family in many cases. Um, but for them to not have a lockup period and for there to be a history of self dealing makes me a little cautious when it comes to this. Um, this is all to say, looking at the numbers here, looking at some of the kind of softer elements of this business. This is not something that we are kind of particularly interested in at any point in the future, right, Evan? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to pop <laughs> after it starts trading uh, because it's gotten quite a bit of criticism and negative publicity. And and again, beyond all of this self-dealing stuff, the numbers are just horrendous. Like they just look so bad that I I wouldn't even I would not touch this with even other people's money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that a lot of SAAS businesses, um, there are some kind of squishier metrics that you can use to evaluate them, and, and they fail even on those kind of like growth-oriented, profit-later type approaches. I think that this company has so much to figure out with its sales and marketing spend and being more efficient there, and their customer retention and growth 
initiatives, uh, they need to figure all of that out before I'm even putting it close to a watch list. And, you know, just kind of another side note that I think is worth mentioning is that when it comes to this kind of broader business intelligence space of like analytics, this is something that we've been seeing a lot of these like giant tech companies getting increasingly into. Uh, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, because, you know, for them, they, they start off with their cloud infrastructure stuff. And now what they're finding is that they, you know, they're you know, coming back to this whole like land and expand and upsell strategy. I mean, these, these, a lot of companies are going to these giant cloud providers, starting off with just basic infrastructure and hosting. And now what they're finding is that, hey, we can actually start upselling on some of the more analytic and more high value stuff versus like more commoditized stuff like cloud storage or something. I mean, that's, not really an exciting business, right? But as far as the BI stuff and the analytics, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, they're they're taking it very seriously. So, that, you know, can Domo compete with them in the state that it's in? I mean, I <laughs> I'm not going to bet on that. Yeah, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, we'll be happy to watch from the sidelines rather than uh, being on the field with a ticket. Um, anything else before I let you go there, Evan? I think we're good. All right. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Anne Henry for doing her thing behind the glass today. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on.